Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. Today, we have the second in a series of special episodes from a recent symposium on the future of law and transportation, hosted by the Iowa Law Review. What you hear on this episode is a panel called Rights of Way and Public Space, featuring four professors. They each speak for about 12 minutes and then take Q&A. These professors are David Prithurch, geography professor at Miami University of Ohio, Jamila Jefferson-Jones, a law professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Tara Goddard, an urban planning professor at Texas A&M, and Vanessa Casado-Perez, a law professor and professor of economics also at Texas A&M. This panel is moderated by Jonathan Levine, an urban planning professor at the University of Michigan. We hope you enjoy the show. David Preitherch, please take the floor. Okay. I want to start by thanking Iowa Law for inviting me. It's really an honor to be here. I want to thank Greg and Haley and Dana. So what I'm going to talk about today is I am a geographer and a planner, and I'd like to talk about mobility justice in the public right away and taking a geographical perspective on the street. I think we all know that streets are transport infrastructure, and we've been talking about that, and they're engineered for flow, as we've been talking about. But we also want to remind ourselves that streets are public spaces. And thus, they have a geography of mobility rights, duties, and then justice. But what do we mean by justice? And I want to share real quickly some of the debates that are coming out of geography and cognate disciplines to try to take a different perspective on transportation and mobility. Transportation has always been of great interest to geographers because it really embodies spatial interaction in place. But when I first came into geography, that was really a regional science problem done with gravity models. But what we've seen recently is reframing the question of transportation as a political thing. You know, that, that we know that there are unequal power relations among peoples. They have different experiences. And more than just our individual experiences, we know that those things are framed by systems, right? Spatial, infrastructural, institutional moorings. So well, what are some of those moorings that can kind of constrain or enable our transportation? Well, it's wonderful, of course, to be here today to talk about the law. And I'm not a lawyer. But within geography, there's a subfield that looks at legal geographies. And why geographers think the law is interesting is because there's an incredible dialectic between law and space. And it's a two-way street, right? That understandings of space and, and spatiality are fundamental to legal understandings and practices. But in that reciprocal way, then the law shapes how public space, the street as a public space is regulated, conceived of, and argued about. So... What's interesting as a geographer is that there are broad debates about the city and its streets and what are our claims to it as citizens and residents. There are broad philosophical claims, and I love these. Henri Lefebvre talks about the right to urban life, to centrality, to places of encounter and exchange, these broad radical claims to the street. But those of us who know the law know that, well, there are these things called legally cognizable claims, right? You know, do I have a, a legally cognizable claim? to circulate through space, and that's the mobility part. But there's a bigger picture question when we think about these public spaces like streets and sidewalks. 
Is it just for flow or do we have a broader political claim to public spaces like sidewalks? And so what this leads us all to then is there's a lot of talk in geography about rights, but increasingly we're also talking about justice because different people have different claims to the street and those claims like their bodies occasionally collide with each other. So what we need to do, and this is my struggle in recent years, has been to try to draw from different traditions to understand well, what would a just street be like? I mean, it's one thing to say I have a claim to it, but other people do too. And so we can pull from all kinds of different places. Of course, we can pull from political philosophy and talk about an initial position of equality as Rawls would. Political economists like David Harvey would talk about a just distribution justly arrived at. But I've been really inspired by feminists and religious ethicists who have talked about capabilities and even the street as a rightly related community that's not unjust. Within all of that, though, we're talking about streets as a different kind of space, and mobility is a different kind of process. So the really big debate in geography recently has been to frame and understand what do we mean by mobility justice? And I and other scholars have tried to pull together these different threads to talk about some things that we would expect out of a just street. You know, does it fairly distribute not just accessibility, for example, as a good, but does it fairly balance our rights? Does it fairly distribute the benefits of the street, for example, as well as its burdens? And is there procedural sense, is there fairness in decision-making? So uh, Mimi Shellier is a scholar who just wrote a book on mobility justice. So it's about equity, but it's also about recognition, participation, and deliberation. And the other thing to think about is that it's not just mobility, that mobility is set within other questions about equity in our community. So if we adopt that kind of framework, I've been trying to understand the question, this, how is mobility justice, if we frame it like this, or its absence, shaped through traffic law and design? And that's where I'm very happy to build on Sarah's presentation, um, as well as Jonathan's. And so I've been, as a geographer, been trying to take a tour through realms that are not necessarily my home turf, but they've been really fun. Because you can ask the question, how does the public space come to be in the first place of the street? And what is its purpose? And so this leads one to, for example, your local revised statutes, you know, that the street, its acquisition through eminent domain, for example, is public and the municipalities are given care, supervision and control of the street. Interestingly, in Ohio, the sidewalk is the landowner's responsibility. And while there's a duty for the city to make sure that the street doesn't kill you with a big pothole, we don't assume that responsibility in Ohio for the sidewalk. So you start to see there's some a distributional problem. What's interesting, though, is that even though there's a public purpose that has to be behind public ownership of the street, it doesn't specify what that purpose is. Where that purpose starts to come in is those codes that we've started to talk about, that for the last 100 years almost, that there have been uniform vehicle codes in the United States developed by groups that are not really public, but are kind of public, that promote, for example, uniform vehicle codes that define public ways as being open for the uses of the public for the purposes of vehicular travel. Okay, here's the public use and purpose, right? You know, vehicular travel, that's, that's a narrow definition of what the public space of the street is for, but that's been the dominant definition for a century. Those are just model statutes, but they're adopted in our state traffic codes, which again, if you just want to take a discursive approach to it, those codes are not called mobility codes or transport codes. They're often called motor vehicle codes. 
And those then define the gray spaces. They define the purposes of the space. So the roadway is for vehicular travel. The sidewalk is for pedestrians, and it defines what the spatiality is, and it defines the crosswalk as a hybrid kind of space. And so what we have is the public right-of-way that's now by law divided up geographically into different corridors, and there are different lines that are drawn. And they're then assigned to modes by definition. But if we want to come back to rights, we want to ask the law, well, what right does the law give us to be in the street? And interestingly, the rights are really defined in terms of mobility, that we define it in terms of right of way. And this is one of the juiciest definitions for me. It's this idea that what is my right? Well, my right is defined in terms of my right to proceed uninterruptedly in preference to another. So if we want to talk about mobility politics, what's more political than one person needing to yield to another in space? And this is very geographical too. So, you know, it depends on your space. If you're in the roadway in Ohio, you shall yield right away to all vehicles. The sidewalk is different and the crosswalk is interesting. You'll say, okay, well, drivers are supposed to yield right away to the pedestrian, except where signals indicate otherwise. But you look at a street like this in the heart of my town where crosswalks are absent. You know, they're implied in the law, but if they're absent, you have a right to a design feature that may not exist for you, or you have a right to the sidewalk, but the sidewalk doesn't exist. My education as someone who's dabbling in the law has been really interesting to get into case law, because it turns out that our mobile bodies collide with each other, and judges need to sort out who's at fault, who bears liability. And so it's not just statutes, which talk a lot about our rights, what about our duties? And so it's really interesting to think about the rights and the responsibilities that are also assigned then by space and mode. So in Ohio, for example, the driver owes no duty of care to pedestrians outside the crosswalk. Do not step in front of a car in Ohio because the driver owes no duty of care to you. So let's take a space that's ostensibly pedestrianized, like the crosswalk. You have a preferential but not an absolute right, and the pedestrian must maintain a continuous duty of care. So even in a space where ostensibly you have the right, you have to maintain duty of care as a pedestrian. And if you step out, and you get hit by somebody, if you're being distracted, for example, pedestrian, you can be partially liable for your own injuries. We can, again, you know, think about this in terms of rights and justice. I won't talk at length because Sarah's introduced us to the design standards. Those things exist in the law, but then they are codified in a way spatially through engineering and design standards. So the ASHTO, it's how we approach the spatiality, the geometry of the street, which the traditional motto of Ashto was the efficiency, comfort, safety, and convenience of the motorist. Again, not super duper subtle. And it's really interesting. It takes these design parameters of who's the vehicle and what are their parameters and how do they operate. And then the language is accommodation of other modes. You know, So do we accommodate other modes? But those are typically not mandated. And so it's voluntary. And then, you know, what's interesting to me is that that's the asphalt. So how about the other stuff? So that there are these uniform traffic control device manuals that are adopted federally, but also in our states to ensure orderly movement of all road users. And so this informs your signs and your markings that govern our flow through the street. And again, the signal assigns the right of way. So that politics of the street, who gets the right of way, the signal helps determine that. So my argument with all of this is that the street is unjust by law and design. Ostensibly, you look at the Ohio Revised Code, for example, the motor vehicle codes do assign rights to all people, 
But again, the design features don't necessarily ensure that they're there. And then if we think about procedurally, I'm on my local city council to try to understand how roadways get engineered. I don't even have access to that process. Okay. And so it's not democratic. If you want to buy the green book, you know, be prepared to show up $400. So what does a more just street look like? And I'm really excited here. I don't want to talk too much about complete streets because I know Beth is here, who's going to talk about the great work they're doing. But a total reframing of the streets is happening now, which is there's this coalition of people who are saying, no, it's not about routine accommodation. Streets are for everyone. Pedestrian cyclists have rights to the street, so they're equally deserving of safe facilities. It's an equity argument. It's a justice argument, fundamentally. But again, saying it's not enough, so cities have adopted standards that, for example, commit to an equitable vision. And these policies have even gotten better about emphasizing protecting the vulnerable and underserved communities. That this is not just some of the time, it should be all of the time. And the exception should be rare. And what's really powerful about this, it says, you know what, maybe the engineers shouldn't be the only people controlling the street. And we should use these best practices that do exist. And what's interesting to me, then the NACTO manual is free. You can see it on the web and you can see how your streets could be more intermodally just, but also more livable. And what's really even more profound to me is that it's beyond just intermodalism. We're now talking about that these are public spaces and how can they be used in a more open and truly public way. And maybe that means taking space away from cars and using it for public place purposes. So that's the most radical thing for me. But I think that we have to get back to the law because the Uniform Vehicle Code is itself fundamentally unjust in its construction. And so this thing's overdue um, for a major rehaul. So in conclusion, the street is unjust by law and design, but we have an opportunity to imagine a more just street. And it won't be easy because streets and codes are durable, but we can not only reimagine transportation, but we can reimagine what the city is like. And why I'm honored to be here is because the law is a really good place to start. So thank you for your time. Great. I think I'll jump in here. We have a few minutes for questions. We have one question in the chat, and that pertains to the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices trying to currently revise the Uniform Vehicle Code. So the question is about the relevant expertise that is privileged in revising such codes. Engineering, engineers writing the law seems to be the worst idea ever. How do we stop them? Should we? And maybe I'll add, and how do we simultaneously ensure that engineering expertise is also deployed and used and respected? So it's a good question. I mean, I'm not an engineer, and I'm pretty bad at math. But it turns out that geometric design of streets is often not even geometry. Sometimes it's just arithmetic. Like, how many feet in the roadway do we allocate to different purposes? And so that's a conversation that I think the roadway design is less arcane and hard to understand than people might think. And I think it's open for debate and deliberation by non-engineers. I'm not real familiar with how ASHTO, those manuals come about, but I think we need more procedural fairness with who's at the table. And again, I think that the other thing could be, and I, I really tip my hat to, for example, the highway capacity manual is we're getting more intermodal in the principles that guide the engineer. So if I think we attend to the principles of what we want to accomplish in a street, then the engineering hopefully could serve that. Great. The next question pertains to the institutions that could bring about a more of a right to the city approach. Do you see any space in the law, maybe environmental justice or NEPA, 
to protect a right to the city, not just in terms of pedestrian motion, but also in terms of a right for non-motorists to be somewhere for converting space dedicated to parking and vehicle traffic to the public. So the question is, what of our legal institutions are capable or potentially capable of bringing this vision about? Well, I guess I'm bullish as an urban planner and a local elected official about the power of the locality. That these standards, actually, if you look at the AASHTO standards, for example, the NACTO standards, they provide a lot of latitude to do a lot of very different things with our streets. And to a great degree, the street control is a local phenomenon. You could close the street to cars, you could open it to cars, you can reallocate the space, and those standards are there. And that, to me, is the power of the complete streets, is that once adopted, it reframes the conversation then it directs you to national standards that show you how it could be done. Locally, I think it's very empowering. It's hard to wrestle with engineers because, again, it's, it can be a black box if you're not a, an engineer. But I think that you can make slow progress using tools that right now are the NACTO standards are downloadable. The engineers in your city will hate that you know what the best practices are but you can have a conversation with them and, and maybe you might find that there are a lot of engineers who support you and for more creative solutions. I want to push a little bit on that idea of reliance uh, on the locals. I'll bring in Bre Greg's idea about transportation nimbyism, that local constituencies can often be as conservative as the most traditional transportation engineer when it comes to doing different things with the roadway space. Well, this is really true. I mean, this can come on both sides, for example, with the politics of bike lanes when converting street space, that local business and parking interests can fight against it, but as can communities of color, for example, or lower income communities. I guess to me, the power comes in redefining what your project purpose is. And like, I guess you would say, Jonathan, we can redefine what our outcomes are. And it's not just about mobility per se, but maybe it's access, but also it's equity. If you redefine the street as by default, it should be an equitable space, an exception should be rare. It reframes how do you allocate space to the convenience of parked cars when it could be a facility for the bodily safety of a pedestrian or cyclist. It tips the conversation at a local level. Yeah, I don't know whether it helps with the local politics. but Great. See, I think that's all the questions, unless I'm missing. I know there's various channels. There's the chat, there's a the question and answer, and I think there's also the Twitter. I'm doing my best to monitor the various channels. Am I missing any questions, Greg? You're not. But I want to add one thing very, very quickly using, um, I guess, organizer privilege, which is that I'm holding in front of me a copy of the 1967 Uniform Vehicle Code, Rules of the Road with Statutory Annotations. And Article 12 pertains to bicycles, and it states operation of bicycles and play vehicles. That's how <laughs> the UVC classifies bicycles basically as toys. So it really shouldn't be surprising that the regulations are, are so really biased in favor of cars. Great. Well, I think that's probably it for the questions for this. Thank you very much, David. So the next speaker is Jamila Jefferson-Jones. All righty. So I may be the odd duck on the panel, which is normally what I am anyway. I'm not a transportation scholar at all. I am a property scholar. I see property everywhere. I see it in all things. And so you'll, you'll see that as I talk about driving while Black as living while Black, I also see it in what others may see as criminal justice issues. First, though, I do want to thank Greg Schill and Iowa Law for inviting me to be here today 
and Haley and Dana for all of their work and especially Haley for her patience with me. So the work that I want to talk to you about today is entitled Driving While Black as Living While Black. And it grew out of a recent article that I co-wrote with Tajania Henderson. The article was published earlier this year in American University Law Review. And it was entitled Living While Black, Blackness as Nuisance. Again, like I said, in all of these criminal justice issues and in other issues, I just see property. And so in that piece, we examined a slew of 2018 and 2019 incidents in which white people called the police on black people who were engaged in everyday activities. And in our article, we worked to bridge the gap between criminal law and property law by examining how these complaints and what we call living while black incidents deployed the language of land use to provoke state violence with the aim of excluding black people from shared space. So in this paper that I'm talking about today in Driving While Black as Living While Black, I argue that like the larger genre of living while black incidents, the subset of driving while black incidents can be analyzed as a property issue rather than solely a criminal justice problem. So in that way, I'm further expanding the living while black scope by examining the role that this particular subset of this genre plays in the perpetuation of white supremacy and black subordination, particularly as they function in spatial contexts. in this context, the road, and in also in this case, as they affect black people's freedom of movement and right to use and enjoyment of the open road. So living while black and driving while black and other wild black activities have spawned their own genre of social media hashtags. And the hashtag, hashtag living while black first appeared as a social media hashtag to mobilize attention to incidents where white people called the police on black people for doing everyday things that were non-criminal and again, everyday activities. And that brings us to this phenomenon, this term living while black. And in each of the incidents that we cataloged in our previous paper, we saw this particular strand of racist hostility and aggression, one that we believe has deep roots in American society. And in order for me to talk about driving while Black, I have to first talk about this idea of living while Black. So what is that, right? In 2018 alone, one CNN, the police had been called on Black people for Operating a lemonade store, golfing too slowly, waiting for a friend at Starbucks, barbecuing at the park, working out at a gym, campaigning door to door, moving into an apartment, mowing the wrong lawn, shopping for prom clothes, napping in the university common room, asking for directions, not waving while leaving Airbnb, redeeming a coupon, selling bottled water on a sidewalk, eating lunch on a college campus, riding in a car with a grandmother, babysitting two white children, wearing a backpack that brushed against a woman, working as a home inspector, working as a firefighter, helping a homeless man, delivering newspapers, swimming in a pool, shopping while pregnant, driving with leaves on the car, trying to to cash a paycheck. So walking while Black, swimming while Black, studying while Black, sitting in a cafe, Starbucks, while Black, and of course, driving while black. 
and having the police called to remove you from the spaces in which you're merely existing. That's what living while black is. But living while black is actually a play on driving while black. So when I say driving while black as living while black, actually driving while black came first. And so normally when we talk about driving while black or lately when we've talked about driving while black, we are talking about pretextual traffic stops of black motorists by law enforcement. However, those perils of driving while black also include the historical challenges that black people in the United States have faced when attempting to establish and protect their right of freedom to movement or freedom of movement and the use and enjoyment of the open road, whether those rights are imperiled by state law, via law enforcement practices and other means or by private actors. The United States has a long-standing history of efforts to keep black people from enjoying freedom of movement and restricting them from entering spaces that have been racialized as white. And this is one of the many incarnations of Living While Black. In fact, the restriction of black freedom through the racialization of space is the common thread that ties driving while black to that broader phenomenon of living while black and other while black hashtags and phenomenons and incidents that people discuss. And so these incidents are not new. They hearken back to Jim Crow America and the notion, and even farther, and the notion that Black people should be restricted to subordinate places, both in the social hierarchy and in spatial hierarchies. And there are some commonalities between now and then, namely that law and its enforcers have been used and are being used to draw lines of racist exclusion. So what does it mean for space to be racialized? Property is racialized and space is racialized when it is ascribed a racial identity or character. And that includes that character that includes some and excludes others on the basis of race. So those spaces can be neighborhoods, public parks. They can also include avenues, boulevards, streets, country roads, and interstates. And so spaces are racialized by people who use and lay claim to them. And the central principle of racial territoriality is that what should be shared space here, the road, is being wrongfully claimed in the name of racist exclusion and in the interest of white supremacy. So while on social media and in public conversation, the phenomenon that I've been examining over the past couple of years seems new. Racial territoriality is not new. So we can then take that idea and move to this idea of freedom of movement. And that's been one of the hallmarks of American liberty. And this freedom of movement, however, has largely been the privilege of white people. Throughout the history of the United States, black people whether enslaved or free, have faced both de jure and de facto limitations on their ability to move about freely. And these restrictions on Black movement have been enforced through the use of police force. So this is a quote from the slave narratives that were recorded during the 30s as part of the Federal Writers Project. And so we have here Ida Henry who says, we would be sorry when dark as the patrollers would walk through the quarters and homes of the slaves all times of night with pine torch lights to whip the, and she uses the N-word in her parlance, they are found away from their homes. 
but the idea is that Black people could be whipped from being found away from wherever they were relegated to. So during the era of slavery, the United States travel by both enslaved and free Blacks was severely circumscribed. Enslaved Blacks were only permitted away from plantations where they worked with permission that was manifested by written passes. So no access to the road without permission. And the law also required free Blacks to carry papers proving their freedom and thus their ability to travel. And so these papers were access to the road, but that access could always be taken away and was always limited. And one of those ways in which it was limited and enforced was through the slave patrols. And those are the ancestor of our modern day police force. They're the means by which the rules of Black movement were enforced. So not only could members of slave patrols discipline enslaved persons who had left their plantations without permission, they also had the authority to kill those who resisted. And thus the constriction of the movement of Black people who were either property or at peril of becoming property, again, was inextricably tied to property rights, which were enforced through state violence. So this constriction of Black movement did not end with freedom. If we remember our history, we know that Black codes were enacted, and the clear purpose of those was also to prevent Black people from moving from place to place uninhibited. And so as Black people have asserted their right to move from place to place, whether right after slavery, during the long course of the Great Migration, they were confronted with, okay, one minute remaining. All righty. Well, what I want to tie us to is that there's this history that then we take from that time, move through Jim Crow, and that takes us to the automobile, which although it expanded freedom of movement, we also saw the backlash of this freedom of movement of Black bodies and the need to constrict Black bodies that still was brought forward both through pretextual stops, but also through this idea that a Black body in motion is always suspect. And so if we look at that, we can then tie all of this back together to this idea that living while Black, driving while Black, that they're all about space and the racialization of space that restricts the movement of Black people in general writ large. And so driving while Black then becomes, when we look at it as a larger phenomenon of not just pretextual stops, but also as restriction of movement on the road, is one that is a property issue. Maybe it seems it's one of transportation or one of criminal justice. It's a property issue that has these spokes that reach out into these other areas. So I will stop talking now and take the questions. Thanks, Jamila. Maybe I'd like to jump in with the first question, get the discussion going. What kind of reforms would be most promising in overcoming this problem? I want to suggest two possibilities, and I want to run the okay. you to see if they might be useful. One is reducing the role of conventional law enforcement and traffic enforcement. So essentially raising the threshold for, for a cop to stop you, that would need to be presumably some sort of clear and present danger, whereas if there is an offense that doesn't rise to the level of that level of danger, maybe you just get a ticket sent to your home. 
The second might be greater automation, for example, red light cameras, the, the much hated and in my state illegal red light cameras. I wonder if these approaches could, by taking the judgment out of the stop, the prerogative out of the stop, that it could actually reduce discriminatory impact. Okay, yes. Yeah. So for both of those possible remedies, what they do is reduce police and civilian contact, right? And so from that standpoint, they are both great ideas for remedies. Just as we see in the larger kind of defund the police movement, it's really a movement about removing police contact from everyday life. So where we have mental health issues, instead of calling the police, maybe we call someone, we call some mental health core. Same thing in this context, where when someone has committed some minor traffic violation, then yes, the ticket can be sent to their home. There's no need for there to be police contact in that space. And that's also what traffic cameras can do. But as you mentioned, Jonathan, they are the much hated traffic cameras. Right. And so one of the reasons that they're so hated is where they're placed. So, again, we get into this idea of controlling space. So I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, and shout out to Beth Osborne, who's my high school classmate. But in New Orleans, these cameras were placed oftentimes or disproportionately in areas of the city that were black and black neighborhoods. And so with the cameras, if cameras can be placed equitably, I think that they are useful because they do reduce actual contact with the police, but they have to be placed in some manner that is not just about who lives there, but has some, if, if neutral principles can be put together for their placement, then yes. Thank you. We have a question from Daniel Rodriguez. Now, first of all, this is terrific, really interesting research, and I'm looking forward to looking at the American University Law Review paper. Now, I know your focus in this presentation is on public spaces, but it's interesting, among the list of examples you gave, the Starbucks and others, is activity on private spaces. Now, maybe we can interrogate that and call them quasi-public. As you know, as a property scholar, there's a whole literature about that. But let's stick with the notion that they are essentially private spaces. And I wonder whether, you know, building on the, the kind of post-Shelley versus Kramer literature, you're looking at private spaces, but you're calling police enforcement and law enforcement, right, to enforce sort of trespass laws as against mm -hmm. individuals living while black in these private spaces. And I wonder whether your research, your really interesting research, has any purchase or anything to say about the effacement, right, of the public-private distinction, and in particular, how we might think anew about living while black in private spaces that have, you know, the bookstores, the coffee shops, the, the places that are traditionally private, but in the light of, well, anyway, you get the, you get the point. Question. So, yeah, these places are privately owned, but Starbucks doesn't embrace that term. They embrace the term third space, that right. they are something in between, some liminal space between public and private. They are an extension of your own living room that they want to replicate the salons of old. And so, they have abandoned their this idea of themselves as private spaces and have only re-embraced it in limited contexts, like we saw with the gentlemen who were arrested in Philadelphia in April 2018. And so I know I had to talk about living while black to get to driving while black, but we can also then expand this into 
this idea of trying to privatize in some ways the road or at least constrict the road so that it's not a place that is open to all or that is equally open to all, but has been constricted for certain groups at certain times, particularly with regard to Black people. So your original question was about private space, but I want to push back on the idea that these spaces sell themselves as private. I think we have time for one more question. And I'm scanning the various channels to see, make sure I'm not missing anything. Looking at the chat. And there's one comment. I don't know if you wanted to use that or if there was. Please go ahead then. Okay, so there's a comment and the comment is it's from Kelsey Ralph. And she says that it strikes me that placing cameras in black neighborhoods is not necessarily racist, particularly because we know that most of our high crash corridors are locations where white affluent drivers traverse from the suburbs to the central city through predominantly black neighborhoods. So I'll admit that I am not as fully versed in placement nationwide, but when I speak to the placement in my hometown, these were not just in the neighborhoods, in the center parts of neighborhoods, but on the borders between Black neighborhoods and white spaces and at large intersections, but not necessarily at the large intersections that were similar, but that did not constitute places of racial demarcation. So I think that there's more that needs to be examined with regard to placement and that we have to draw lines between whether that placement is on lines of historical demarcation between neighborhoods, whether it's placed within within neighborhoods, which traffic cameras usually aren't. Those are usually other types of crime cameras that are used in that way. But I do understand your point there. Great. Thank you very much, Jamila. Jefferson Jones, we're going to be moving on to Tara Goddard now. Great. Thanks, everybody. Can I just give a thumbs up? You can see my screen there. Everything looks good. Thank you. I really appreciate being invited to this. I come from an engineering and a planning background. But of course, there's the law is so important to that. And so I'm really happy to see these conversations happening and to be a part of it. And I'm looking forward to more of that. So I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction, but it's really relevant to what everyone has been talking about or will come out today. And it's the way that we talk about and frame a lot of these issues in transportation and for me in particular, in transportation safety. So I use the word semantics in the title. And so I just want to remind everyone kind of what semantics is. It's really at, at its heart the study of meaning. And I'm, I'm not a linguist, but I think ever since I was a kid, I'm fascinated by words, which is why I'm the cool kid at the party. Also, what this idea of the phrase, oh, it's just semantics, because that's really the first time I ever remember hearing the word semantics is in the context of it's just semantics. And so I looked it up, and even in the definition in the like it's Oxford guide there, they use this idea that quibbling over semantics is petty stuff. And Merriam-Webster traced the idea of just semantics back about a hundred years. So you almost get this idea of, I think they called a contronym, right? So it almost has the opposing meanings. Semantics, we say, ah, it's just semantics. It doesn't matter. But also semantics, the study of meaning is extremely meaningful. So I just want you to keep that in mind as I go through talking about this language and framing. So I'm specifically talking about 
the way that we talk about pedestrians, bicyclists, other people outside of vehicles when we talk about traffic safety. And just to remind us, and you may all know, it's a public health crisis when we talk about traffic safety broadly, and certainly for people outside of vehicles. It's disheartening every time I have to re-up these statistics. It's gotten worse and worse each of the last few years. But we're talking about, you know, a couple people a day, and these are U.S., not worldwide. Worldwide, it's, it's even worse, killed while bicycling, a person every 84 minutes killed while walking. So we're talking about the equivalent of a airplane going down every few days, I think it is. And what are euphemistically called non-occupants, because of course we default or center the automobile, they're about one out of five of traffic fatalities and almost a third of child traffic fatalities are people outside of vehicles, so walking or bicycling. So one of the motivations of the work that I do and others is this question of where's the widespread public outcry? Why do we kind of accept this as the cost of doing business? And instead, you know, we have this huge both reality and perception of walking or bicycling as a very dangerous thing to be doing. And this has gotten a lot of attention more recently, which is great to see is who has this duty of care. And in particular, both our environment and our vehicles and our driver behavior, this got a lot of attention. You may have all seen this, is the huge front blind zones of our vehicles, which have really changed design. They've gotten bigger, taller, they've grills have gotten more vertical. It was an ABC report where it took 13 children lined up before a driver sitting in that Cadillac Escalade, I believe it is, could see the children in front of that. So, you know, we're not talking about a level playing field here. Here's another photo. I talk a lot about power when I talk with my students, both physical and, of course, metaphorical, legal, financial, political power. So when we say, you know, pedestrians, you need to wear bright clothing or look out for yourselves, that doesn't save you when the real power is held by others. So a couple of colleagues and I have been talking for a long time about what's the role of the media in this. So I just want to acknowledge my coworkers on this research, Kelsey Ralph, who we saw was in the chat, Calvin Thigben and Evan Ayakabuki. So we know there's a whole rich field of media studies that says media coverage helps determine what gets attention, what's framed, what's seen as important. So our first study, we wanted to say, Okay, what's the state of the practice at all? Is this as bad as we think? Or are we just kind of confirmation bias to seeing this? We looked at 200 articles, local news articles that reported on pedestrian and bicyclist crashes and found absolutely that local news subtly consistently blames the vulnerable road user, the pedestrian or the bicyclist in the way that they focus on what the victim did versus whether they even mention a driver or just a car, et cetera. And we've talked at length, and I can, I'll can i share resources about where to find more detail. And they treat them as isolated incidents, which is really important, and not as part of a system problem or a larger context. And they dehumanize them using kind of othering language. So then we wanted to know, okay, well, this is happening, but really, does it matter? Is it just the practice, but does it affect how people perceive or how they might respond or demand change? And is this part of the reason of a very complicated issue of why we don't see that public outcry. So we recruited 999 people, which sounds funny, but we had three experimental conditions. So it was perfect, three groups of 333 people. And each group read one version of a similar article. And it's very important to understand 
that they didn't know there was other articles. They weren't comparing articles. They just saw one article and then answered some questions. And we asked a variety of questions about fault, punishment, and support for solutions. So this is a bit hard to parse fast, but I just wanna show you, these are the three articles which we in shorthand refer to as the pedestrian focused, the driver focused, and the thematically framed, so that the larger context or theme and the ones in bold, this isn't how it appeared to them. There was no bolding. This is for this for demonstration. But the items in bold are what we changed by each article. So going from calling an accident to a crash, changing the phrasing a pedestrian struck a car to a driver striking a pedestrian. So even though they're bolded, they're actually pretty subtle differences when you're reading through them. And then that third one, the thematic one, is where we gave that bigger context of oh, this is a system-wide, there's been eight fatalities, it's an increase, there's busy shopping area, high traffic speeds, etc. So then we asked them questions. This one was where they have to say up to 100% who has the blame. And what's important to take away from this graph is that these are statistically significant differences in how people apportion blame. Again, remembering they only saw their one article, so they're not comparing. So people that saw the first article said about 50% of the time, the driver was still had some fault. But then there's this huge jump just in that subtle phrasing of instead of a pedestrian was hit, a driver was hit. And then on the third side there, or on the far right, is when we added some things about the context, all of a sudden, a huge jump in people saying, well, there's something other to blame. And we didn't ask them to specify what the other was in this spot. But the point being that it matters, right? It matters when people read even subtle differences. And this is not a perfect kind of jury research project here or whatever experiment, but we did ask them, okay, imagine the driver's on trial. What's the appropriate punishment? And again, big differences when they said none, a third of the people said none if they read just that first article, which keeping in mind the first article is the status quo. That's how articles are done now. We didn't see a big difference for community service and fines, but then for jail time, we saw a big difference and for vehicle impound. And I just want to point out quickly that the vehicle, and I'd love to talk to the property law folks about this, the vehicle impound as a punishment was the least chosen. People were more willing to send people for jail to do something than vehicle impound. And I think that speaks to the role that we view owning a vehicle as a right and a need in our society. So I think this takes a lot more probing, but that was not the focus of our study. I just want to point it out. Importantly, this thematic frame, really, we asked people like, what would you support as a solution to improving this pedestrian safety? And it was the third one with some context and remembering where people blamed other that they were willing to say, yes, we think that environmental changes, design changes, like Beth talked about, wider sidewalks, speed limits, et cetera, and that they were willing to trade off speed through a corridor, getting back to the earlier talk about you know, what's a mobile versus accessible neighborhood, if it meant that fewer people would die. So again, it matters how we talk about and frame these issues on what people think we should be doing about that. I just wanna really briefly talk about, this is not just a media journalism issue, right? So I called this the pre-legal environment because so many things get talked about before they ever enter the actual court system. In Los Angeles, they have a very serious traffic safety problem as we do all over the US. 2019 was a particularly bad year. 
almost half of the people who died in traffic crashes were pedestrians and then the 19 bicyclists. When you look at the stat there at the bottom, I want you to keep it in mind, the pedestrian hit and run fatalities increased by 69%. The end of 2019, which was such a bad year, you had a press conference by the LAPD where the chief of police said, the key for hit and runs is it's an accident, don't make it a crime by hit and run. He's basically saying, you hit someone, it's just an accident, it's not a crime. Well, that's not necessarily true. A lot of times it, it may be a crime. And so that's kind of a problematic framing that we see. And he said, drivers and pedestrians pay attention to their primary responsibility, pedestrians ensuring your safety, keeping in mind what I showed before about blind zones and crash impacts and all that, right? It's not a level playing field. This is another example. So we're starting to see these patterns replicated in the discussions around autonomous vehicles in the autonomous space. This is a really cool study out of MIT about the moral machine, the, a rethinking the trolley problem. I don't have time to go into it. But even in this one, look at the framing here where they say the affected pedestrians are abiding by the law crossing and they're flouting the law, okay? Not going against the law, not going against the red, flouting, right? So there's this idea that, oh, well, they've just done it. It's flipping. It's, you know, but there's lots of reasons people might cross against. Maybe the light doesn't change for an hour and you have to walk and cross. And then again, this idea, you see it all the time, people looking at autonomous vehicles. Oh my God, pedestrians are just going to run amok. They're going to step in front of vehicles all the time. Nobody's going to go anywhere. This is my favorite phrase here the bullying of self-driving cars, right? As though self-driving cars, we have to worry about pedestrians bullying them. But I'd like to say change is possible. Things are happening. I wanna share a little bit of successes that we've had, I guess, conversations with people. The UK right now is led by a, some journalists and some advocates and city professionals is they're coming up with road safety reporting guidelines, partly using our work, which is really exciting really just kind of setting out, we need to do better and here are ways to do that. And then a fun story where I was presenting our work at a conference and Carlton Reed, who's a journalist in the UK, he wrote about it and then immediately tweeted, oh, Grammarly said we should do exactly against these practices, replace crash with accident, right? So exactly against kind of what we're saying, but as Twitter does, Twitter started tagging Grammarly and pretty quickly, Grammarly wrote back and said, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We're going to change this algorithm. There's 7 million daily users of Grammarly, right? This stuff matters if we can get these changes made. So then finally, I just want to leave with this. There's a lot of stakeholders. There's a lot of actors that we'd like to say, thinking about these language issues and these framing issues, right? So it's, it's journalists and editors police officers on scene and in press releases, lawyers, judges, right? The way that these come through legal documents or arguments, sentencing guidelines, and then engineers and planners. It's in our documents, our community engagement, et cetera. So if you look at the title here, this is really what I'm hoping for, and I think it fits nicely with the previous two talks, is this idea of going from, oh, that's just semantics to an idea of a just semantics when we're talking about transportation safety. And these are the main things that I think kind of capture that briefly. So avoiding victim blaming, understanding who has the power and duty of care, 
and I mean that everything from the physical to the political power, right? Constantly checking and correcting biases. So I didn't get to go into kind of racial issues or gender issues, but those absolutely intersect with some of these other language and framing issues. And so just compound the problem, like absolutely in the driving while black, walking while black, et cetera. Framing problems in the context of a system, not a one-off, which is at the absolute heart of the Vision Zero movement. Implementing processes and structures, by which I mean, we don't want to depend on individual champions or people who are woke or people who get this. We need to have these things in place so that the default is looking out for these language and framings. And then finally, I think this is super important, is that traffic violence is about people. And so when we're talking about these, I consider it like a sacred duty that we're speaking and writing their stories. These are not just statistics. I tend partly, I think, to protect myself by talking about the numbers and the statistics, but these are stories at their heart. And I think that's really part of this idea of a just semantics. With that, I'll wrap it up. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tara. I'd like to start with maybe one I've long admired your work, by the way, on uh, I thought it's a brilliant merger of planning issues and linguistic analyses. I'd like to suggest maybe one additional best practice for journalism. And I regularly observe that when there's a crash, the article concludes the crash is under investigation, but the results of the investigation are never newsworthy. So, for example, I usually suspect that the driver was probably texting. But we never actually hear what was the behaviors that led up to the crash. So how can we make the reporting on the causes of the crash as newsworthy as the crash itself? That's a really great point. And I think it's something where we're trying to work, when I say we, my colleagues and I and other people interested in this area, is working with journalists more to understand how to change this. And I think UK guidelines are just draft. And so that needs to be in there. Because what happens when, when you go back and we looked at a lot of the articles that were updated later, what they were updating is that the road was now open to car traffic. So many, if not most of the articles report, oh, the streets closed. And then the thing that's newsworthy in your term is that the streets back open to car traffic and not the fact of what happened. So I think it's a good question. And I don't know the answer, but I think we need to figure out because again, the context of it gets lost. Thanks. Let's see, I see a raised hand, David Preithrich. Thank you for a really wonderful talk. I was thinking about how, like, if we think about this structurally, what would you change? I mean, if you could pick a discourse or a policy that helps guide our semantics, what would it be? There's the Vision Zero movement, which attempts to reframe a kind of a municipal level. I guess, which kind of conversations would you seek to infuse this just semantics into to get the most bang for your change? That's a really good question. I mean, I'm I'm biased in the sense that I'm in the planning and engineering world. And so I've been really focused on, even though our research was really focused on media, and I've had a lot of conversations with media, most of who I'm talking to are planners and engineers and understanding how this language permeates. Greg read that bit, you know, for vehicle code. And you see this in the MUTCD and you see this in the ASHTO guides, this victim blaming language. So as a planner, engineer type, I feel like that's an area that I can work on. And I'd like to see collaborations co-conspirating with journalists who are working on it in their area. And this is why I'm excited to talk to more law folks and thinking about, you know, how does this 
play out in say sentencing guidelines, like I mentioned, or oral arguments or whatever. So I think it really needs to be a multifaceted approach. And I think Vision Zero, it's absolutely a great one, but it is, I think there needs to be everyone kind of in their different lanes, pun intended, to be working on these. It's a complex issue with really, really deep roots. And we could have a whole long conversation about just the kind of car culture or the deep lobby of cars in, in this society. So yeah, I'm all about the comrades in this action, I guess. We'll take one more question in this session. I see a raised hand, Jamila Jefferson-Jones. Alrighty. So the question I had, it goes to both the identity of the pedestrian. And so you said that you didn't get to talk about that point of kind of where walking while black meets the semantics. And then also going to, I think Jonathan brought it up. It might've been David, but this idea of the follow-up, Jonathan brought up the follow-up story. I have seen the follow-up story, but when I've seen it, it's usually children. There's usually a follow-up story when the child was the pedestrian. And that's just my anecdotal evidence. Have you seen any empirical evidence of, or have you found any of that? And then kind of the flip side is any empirical evidence with regard to how the pedestrian is talked about when they are a person of color. Yeah, so really great question. So one of the things that we found in our work is this idea of the ideal victim, right? So there's tend to be more humanizing tidbits when it's a child, when it's a woman. Often, I think, I don't remember, we didn't necessarily code for everything in this one study as far as like a white woman getting particularly more, but we did see evidence of that. And then you've certainly seen where when there's negative things shared that I think is much more common with like a black victim, right? Is that something in their past, like, oh, they stole a Snickers bar as a kid. And you're like, why is that relevant to them getting hit crossing the street? So definitely this idea of the ideal victim versus others is an issue that we need to be looking out for and correcting all the time. And I think that makes sense if you feel that you're seeing, again, it's these children, we're, this idea that we're more sympathetic to what happens to children. And certainly, I mean, it's not wrong to say that children have even less kind of control over what's happening to them or, or crossing the street or things like that. So I think that's something that is going to need to look at more. And one of the things that I mentioned that I didn't really get to talk too much about is like the walking or biking while black, where you see the huge disparities, you know, Ferguson really, I think, drew attention to the issue, but it's true where you look at any cities, unfortunately, is the numbers of people who are pulled over or stopped by police when walking or bicycling while depending on race versus who actually has contraband or was doing something wrong. And like I looked into the Portland numbers, Portland, Oregon, and far, far more black people were being stopped while walking. But then it was many more of the white people who were stopped who had contraband on them. That's the police term contraband or breaking the law. So all these issues absolutely intersect both in how we talk about them and then what's actually happening. Thank you, Tara. I think we're going to be moving on to Vanessa Casado-Perez. Hi. So thank you to, your, to the organizers and to the other panelists. I have learned a lot through your papers and I am learning more today. I normally wear a Waterloo hat, but water has something in common with this street, which I think is the publicness. So I am here to talk about sidewalks, particularly how I believe that pedestrians should be reclaiming the street. 
So what they imagine court at this type To give you an example that will be repeated across the United States, Austin has 2,500 miles of sidewalk. The Public Works Department believed that they need 2,500 more. On Tuesday, a, mal- a ballot measure was passed. It allocates 50 million to build sidewalks, which builds about 76 miles of sidewalks. So you can see the gap. And what I am talking about are the following problems. Sidewalks that lead you to nowhere, areas without sidewalks, sidewalks in, or in bad conditions, sidewalks that make it difficult with people with reduced mobility to actually use them. So basically, when I say more sidewalks, I say three things. More miles, wider sidewalks, sidewalks in good condition. So why should we care? Because sidewalks actually make us healthier, greener, safer, socially connected, and even wealthier. Obviously, having sidewalk is not a panacea. If we want healthier lifestyle, we probably should have some extra nudges in our food law. If we want to be greener, we need to tighten our vehicle emission standards and reduce the amount of vehicles mile travel. It makes us healthier because people that live in neighborhoods with sidewalks are 48% more likely to exercise 39 minutes a day. It makes us greener because if we have sidewalks, there are certain trips that we will not do by car. And as we will be talking later, the design standards also may help further reduce emissions. It makes us safer because sidewalks may reduce about 88% of crashes between cars and pedestrians. It makes us more socially connected. So social capital goes up in places with sidewalks. Planners are now talking about the sticky streets, the idea that streets are places where people mingle and stay around. And wealthier is just an extra positive consequence. It seems that real estate value goes up when you have sidewalks. This conversation would have looked much different pre-COVID. During COVID times, we realized that sidewalks were extremely important. If you had children, they were a lifeline because you could take them out and they would burn their stamina. If you needed a place to exercise, the sidewalk was the place. Restaurants could actually survive thanks to outdoor dining. So what did we learn about COVID? We learned two things. One, that we needed wider sidewalks and where this wider sidewalk should be. So we need wider sidewalks because we have to ensure social distancing. Normally, our sidewalks are incredibly narrow. There was this picture I wanted to show of a Canadian performer that went around with a sort of Saturn-like ring on the streets to show that most of the sidewalks were too narrow to allow for social distancing. They are also, we also need wider streets because we have more competing uses of the sidewalk. There is this whole privatization of who owns the sidewalk, right? And increasingly, we have terraces. Restaurants in New York could only have outdoor dining. Bars that even didn't have outdoor dining use the sidewalks informally as the informal forum for happy hour. We have scooters that are owned by private companies that are left everywhere. So wider sidewalks will not solve the problem, but should decrease the rivalry. Something else we learned about COVID. We learned that these wider sidewalks should regain a space that currently is allocated to cars. We should occupy parking spots. By occupying parking spots, we will be discouraging driving, so further reducing emissions. If we not only eat the space of parking spots, but we move even farther into the road and we have narrower roads, they normally tend to decrease speed, which also reduces emissions and also helps prevent fatalities. 
So why don't we see more sidewalks? In part because, and Professor Cassis will be much better than I am at talking about this local NIMBYism, but we don't see sidewalks in a lot of suburban neighborhoods because they were built with the idea that they had to be different from cities. Cities were filthy, they had sidewalks, they wanted to be more rural, whatever rural means in their minds, because I have seen plenty of rural areas with sidewalks, but they don't have sidewalks and they don't feel the need to build them. They also, and this connects a little bit with some of the discussions on mobility justice, they also believe that if they have sidewalks, unwanted people will come to the neighborhood and that crime will go up. There is some you know, evidence that actually the contrary happens because once you have sidewalks, you have more eyes on the street. So the neighborhood tends to be safer. They also try to argue that sidewalks are bad for the environment. And obviously there are types of pavements that are bad for the environment because they create runoff. But there are other types of pavements that allow for percolation of water and minimize that negative effect. But those types of pavements are more expensive and sidewalks are already expensive. And as we will see, the financing of sidewalks is one of the areas that law is failing pedestrians. So in order to talk about regulation, I am going to differentiate between existing developments that don't have sidewalks and new developments. So for existing developments, and this connects with David's talk, we have to first learn who owns the sidewalk. And this will depend a lot on where we are and where the property line is. In some municipalities, it's the municipality. In some other places, it's the landowner with property adjacent to the sidewalk owns the sidewalk. No matter where we are, the public has a right of way. However, this doesn't explain who pays for the sidewalks. Ordinances are all over the place. In some places, it's the municipality. In some other places, it's the landowner. In some places, a combination of both. This can be a problem because Sidewalks are expensive, they are cheaper than roads, but they are still expensive and they can make a dent on household finance. And that's why we see that low-income neighborhoods tend to have fewer sidewalks and sidewalks that are in disrepair. It's also a problem because we subsidize roads, right? For every dollar that you spend driving, the society spends more than nine. For every dollar that you spend, spend meaning how much it costs you, walking, society finance $0.1. So obviously, given the good consequences of walking, we should be financing sidewalks. But that's the first best. And while we may not get there, there are other regulations that municipalities can put in place that may help move us closer to increasing walkability of our cities. One thing that I have seen in plenty of ordinances is this idea that if someone does construction work in a property that doesn't have sidewalks today, and that construction work increases the value of the property by a certain percentage, they have to build sidewalks. They offer them the possibility of paying a fee, an India fee, instead of building the sidewalk. And this can be positive, particularly when you have a municipality that is cash-strapped and they have low-income neighborhoods that really need the intervention. But if we can find funds somewhere else to cover those, let's call it mobility justice problems, Nashville offers us a good example of how to approach this. So Nashville offers you the possibility of either building the sidewalk or paying an ILIA fee. But if a single house on your block already has a sidewalk, you no longer have the option. You have to build that sidewalk. So now let's move to new developments. And 
this morning, uh, Professor Levine and later on, Professor Stahl will explain more about traffic studies. But right now, when we have a new development, we ask the developer to fund new road construction with the idea that there will be increase in traffic. So we have to serve that new demand and we build roads. Those roads don't, don't solve the traffic problem, the whole problems that they discuss about level of service and the like. They also tend to be wider roads, making more difficult for cyclists and for pedestrians to actually walk or cycle. But we tend not to ask them to build sidewalks. So we should have some sort of more clear policy about what we want to ask them for sidewalks. And in my paper, I play around two options. One is a carrot and one is a stick. So right now we have seen in several municipalities that they give credits to those developers that develop near transit and they give them credits and they have to build fewer parking spots. So envisioning a system of credits based on walkability score could be one approach. The other approach, more of a stick-like, will resemble this idea that we have in regarding road traffic, right? You ask the developer to estimate demand and to serve that demand, and I am oversimplifying. If we did the same for sidewalks, we probably wouldn't ask the developer to build a single sidewalk, right? If we ask the developer to estimate future demand of people that want to walk in the car culture we live in, that demand will be very small. So taking the example of environmental law, where we have certain pollution regulations that are technology forcing, that set very ambitious goals that make the polluter be innovative to meet those. Instead of focusing on future demand, we ask the developer to create that demand, to actually build new developments, increasing walkability score, even if right now we don't have that demand or we may not expect that demand. And I'm just going to finish by saying that we see that millennials and Generation Z have a clear preference for sidewalks and for mixed-use zoning, but and probably those are the people that voted uh, the Austin measure. But while that change is happening, we should make sure that our regulations encourage sidewalk building instead of discourage it. And with that, I am open to questions. Thank you. Let's see, I see a few questions in the question section. Do you see a path to increasing sidewalk funding at the state and federal level? So at the federal level, what has been most successful is the Safe Routes to School program that is normally attached to the highway bills. It's great, right? It's the idea that we have to prioritize those sidewalks that will connect certain neighborhoods with the public school. And that's one way some municipalities have used it very successfully, but the amount that they provide, it's still a small part. Uh, just think about the 50 millions that Austin has just passed, only provides 76 miles. So we need more funding and there could be funding. There has been lots of funding for highway construction. So there could be lots of funding and it will be far cheaper to build sidewalks. I think time for one more question. This is also, uh, I see a raised hand here. Noah, Noah Kazis. Thanks. You mentioned the different underlying property regimes about whether the adjacent landowners actually own the sidewalk or whether the public owns the sidewalk. And you sort of move past that to the regulatory structures about who's responsible and who has to build. And I was wondering if those underlying property differences end up mattering or if it's just sort of a pure formal distinction. So from what I have seen, it's a pure formal distinction. I think it's Philadelphia, which is very much in the news now, that has neighborhoods where the 
neighbor owns the sidewalk and others that are more modern where the city owns. No matter where you are, the property owner is responsible for construction, for cleaning, snow removal and the like. Actually, snow removal is very controversial because we clean the streets, but we don't clean the sidewalks. We rely on the neighbors to do so. And we hardly ever punish them for not doing so. So I don't think there is a difference. A lot of people from what I have, and this is informal talks I have had with people I know all over the country, they don't even know if they own the sidewalk or not. They just know that they have particular duties regarding that space in front of their homes. And that it's, and now I'm blanking, Nadav Choquette uh, and David Dana have this paper on, you know, this, I don't remember how they call it, but it's just about the limit between public and private and where that is, that everything is fuzzy. So sidewalks are a little bit like that. No matter who owns them, you know, the duties of one and the other interlock. And, you know, I don't see different attitudes from homeowners, no matter whether they own or not. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you to my co-host, Jeff Lynn, to our producer, Skylar Powells, and to all of you, our listeners. If you haven't already, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find the show. You can subscribe there as well. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.